Well, good morning. This is um, part two of three different um, classes that I'll be leading with the main title of Photo Pilgrimage, and then we'll have different subtitles for the different three weeks. So last week we looked at, um, we looked at, what did we look at? We looked at baptism and conversion in early Europe. And if you remember correctly, I went through a bunch of different um, things, aspects about Christianity that made it um, not just powerful through the ways that we as Christians um, in retrospect look back and say, well, it's true, and that's why I came to faith, or the Holy Spirit moved me, and that's how I came to faith, but looking even sociologically, even in a almost a worldly sense and saying, what is it? Well, Christianity is a rational choice, and in those early um, years of the Roman Empire, those first few centuries of the Common Era, you could see how, um, as Rod Stark, one of my favorite sociologists slash church historians, makes it clear that um, Christianity was appealing to people for multiple reasons, in part because Christians really lived out their faith. They really loved their neighbor as, themse- as the, their own selves. They had truly internalized the word of the gospel, that they had been loved by God in Jesus Christ and so then they took that vertical component of love and they lived it out in a horizontal way so whenever you see that horizontal love displayed in our community in our church that is a sign that someone has really received has really recognized I am loved God has loved me in Jesus Christ so we're going to look a little bit more about that in one particular culture and one of my favorite cultures is Celtic looking at the Celts and who are the Celts we're going to look at it as a people group who were they and um, what does it mean what happened with them when they became Christians where were they Um, what are the different things involved that are characteristic of them as a culture how do we see those things um, today and what are some general principles from the conversion of the people of the Celts to Christianity that can inform us and help us as we look at those around us who might not be Christians, who might not know Jesus Christ, um, how can we learn from the way that Celts came to faith in him? So then the subtext of all of this is that I am a spoiled brat and I have been spoiled by my parents to be able to go on all of these wonderful study tours where we've traveled. We've taken four study tours now as the single one of my siblings. Um, my young parents, they're very young and they love to travel. They get the itch. And so I am the person to go with them because I don't have any babies at home. So, um, so all of these pictures that you'll see are from my travels. So this particular um, Celtic cross you know, when you see this wheel-shaped cross, you know it's a Celtic cross. This particular Celtic cross um, was in, okay, Clan Ickletude, and I saw this this summer in Wales. And Clan Ickletude was a, a hive of Christians who were learning. It was a monastic community beginning in the 6th century where Christians came to learn. Um, it's sometimes said to be the first university in Europe, um, even earlier than the Italians. So this beautiful cross, you see there are some characteristics about Celtic crosses that you notice. What do you notice about Celtic crosses that um, we don't have in other crosses, some other crosses? Symmetry, Symmetry and circle shape, the circle shape, I'll talk about that in a little bit, and some of the decoration on it, um, these, especially the triangles and chevrons were something really popular with the Celts, and circles were really popular with them, and it's part of their artistic understanding about the world, and how they viewed the world, their worldview, and, and it was 
adopted, they included that aspect of the way they viewed the world and the way they understood Christianity. So um, who are the Celts? I'll go a little more on that in a minute. The Celts were probably Indo-Europeans who lived all throughout Europe around um, 2000 BC. And we know that they're Indo-Europeans because there's actually so many different things. But oddly enough, there's a close connection between the language of Sanskrit and Old Irish. Gaelic resisted Latinization, if you can believe it. I'm going to scroll through these for a minute just to show you some of the runes on one of the crosses. There they are, the language written. And so um, there's a similarity in that language. As I go back, you can see all of these different crosses. The pagans before the, or the pagan Celts worshipped let's see, 67 gods, but they especially worshipped the sun god. And so we think that the Celtic cross, we don't know for sure, but we think that the Celtic cross came into existence through the influence of Patrick. And I'm going to tell you more about St. Patrick in a moment. Um, But we think that what Patrick might have done was to say to them, everything, just like Paul said to the Athenians, everything you think you know about this person, this um, God that you worship that you do not know, the things about him or it or whatever, they actually are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he might have been, we don't know, but he might have been through the circle. The circle was so important to them culturally. He might have been saying, all that you think is important about the sun God, do you know what? Jesus Christ is even stronger. All of the life-giving properties that you believe come to you through the sun, and naturally they do, even though the sun is part of the created order and not a God, Even so, Jesus Christ gives even more life and health and joy and light. So that's, we, we think that that's part of it. Also, the Latin crosses throughout, um, throughout the Roman Empire would, and depiction of saints would have what's called a nimbus around the head of the saint. You've seen that all throughout art history, and that is a sign of holiness. And so it's possible that the nimbus, that sign of holiness, is adapted for the Celts so that they would see um, that holiness um, surrounding Jesus on the cross. Um, the vine work was very important to them in their stones. You see that also on this ancient chair. This was the bishop's chair in, in the um, Diocese of York, which is in northern England, northeastern England. And it's an ancient chair, we think probably from the 8th or 9th century, but you still see those um, the vine work. The Trinity also is a really threes. When um, threes were always important for the Celts, and so when Patrick ministered to them, witnessed to them, um, the way he, ex- he when he explained the Trinity to them, it made sense to them. Isn't that weird? I mean, how many of us have thought, tried to understand the Trinity, and uh, well, it's a mystery. Is usually how the discussion ends, and they they said, yes, that works for us. That we we get that. Um, So culturally, that was something that they got. We'll look at this cross next week when I talk about story in stone because you see on this Celtic cross not just the runes or the vine work or the chevrons or the circles, but pictures. And we're going to talk about some of those pictures next week. There are some more chevrons and vine work. This is the cross at Karoo in Wales. These were meeting and gathering places where before there were church buildings, people would come to hear the proclamation of the gospel and to learn. And the ones that had pictures were ways for a non-literate people to hear and not just hear, but see the gospel in front of them, the stories. You can see very faintly on this one, the crosses in the stones in this ancient church. This is the most ancient, fully 
still fully standing church in England. It is in Escombe. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it was um, built in the 8th century, and it stands still today. And so it has Celtic background, but this was a Saxon church. Um, but you see some of the very basic um, forms of decorating, the circle and the, she- and the chevron, the triangles. Here's the circle again on a Christian stone. The more simplistic, the more ancient it is. So all of these things, these stones, well, Deborah, why, why all these stones? Um, <laughs> I love them, that's why. And we'll look at more of them next week. But this stonework, this stone um, aspect and the circles in particular were so important to them. They were fierce warriors. The Celts were so fierce that they had defeated both the Greeks and then the Romans in battle at times. They even succeeded in sacking Rome in the 4th century BC, and the Greeks were the first to call them the Keltoi. They were fearsome warriors. Um, they, fought, um, they fought with abandon, and that's what terrified the very rational Greeks and Romans, because they fought as though they didn't care if they died. And it betrayed, even before they became Christian, that these Celtic peoples had a strong view in the afterlife. So when Patrick and others came proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection, it's no wonder that they said, of course he was raised from the dead. They were ready. Um, Their culture had prepared them to hear the gospel. Um, They had a strong belief in the afterlife. And I'm going to show you, this is um, at Newgrange. This is a monument. You can see the... um, the scroll work here, the circles. This is proto-Celtic because it's from um, 3200 BC. This was built um, before the the Great Pyramid in Egypt, built um, before Stonehenge. Now I'm going to show you, this is the entrance. We think it was a tomb, but that no one was buried there. And so um, one of the things, if I can get out of here, let me show you this. This is what this monument looks like from above. The scale is unparalleled, and it, this round structure shows their, their love for circles, perhaps that infinity of the circle going around eternity. They did believe in eternity, and we know that they believed in eternity because they, they spent so many hours, so much labor, so much lifetimes were spent building this particular monument, all for the 17 minutes on the winter solstice, when the winter sun shines down this hallway into the middle of the monument and lights up the interior. We know that there was no fire in there, so they didn't meet in there and burn their own light. They only met in there, used this space for those 17 minutes on the winter solstice. And we think that that um, surely shows us that these proto-Celts, these early pagan peoples, believed that there was life after death, um, that it was worth it to see even these 17 minutes of sun in the dead of winter there was still life and they allowed the sun to transverse go all the way down the corridor so this is Newgrange one of those monuments this is in Ireland Um, but the Celts had um, so they had this love of circles they had this ferocity in battle they had this strong belief in the afterlife Um, they had that decorative skill, a love of the arts, a love of storytelling. They had such a more loose and flexible culture than did the Romans and the Greeks. They had no central organization politically, economically. They had no towns. Um, they didn't build these towns, but they built circular hill forts on, on the top of a hill in a high place, not in a low place. Um, so they had this whole different 
method of construction. Um, and so we can tell based on the archaeological signs that they once existed all around Europe. But what happened is that the Romans and even the Greeks were a little afraid of them because of their ferocity in battle, and they started to push them to the edges of the Roman Empire. And so we know that they ended up more in Spain, Portugal, Brittany, Cornwall, Ireland, North Britain, and the Isle of Man. And these, um, with the British Isles, there was first a migration to Britain, and then we think a separate migration to Ireland, because the British Celts are distinct and different from the Irish Celts, oddly enough. So we'll go into that in a little bit more. But one of the really neat things is that during um, the first century, there were Celts living in Asia Minor, they were living in an Asia Minor in the area of Asia Minor called Galatia. And so we think that Paul's letter, it's possible that Paul's letter to the Galatians was heard by Celtic peoples in the first century, and that was the first way a group of Celts heard the gospel. You foolish Galatians could easily be translated, you foolish Celts, who has bewitched you? Um, there's this tendency to go back towards um, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, um, that legalism, um, and to, and so how interesting. We don't know for sure, but that would be really neat if Paul spoke to them. But when we hear that they are pushed to the edges of the world, we can recognize that um, there's another circular construction by um, we can recognize that the gospel truly went to the edges of the earth, um, the edges of the known world in that day and age. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel went to the ends of the known earth. Um, didn't Probably didn't reach Ireland and North northern Britain, definitely not, not likely or in a very sporadic way at the end, by the end of the first century, but definitely into the second century, into the third century, into the fourth century. And this is um, just to show that they were truly at the ends of the earth. This is Hadrian's Wall, which I don't know if you know this. Does anybody know about Hadrian's Wall? It's, this, it's the weirdest thing. In the north of England, separating England from Scotland, is a wall that goes from ocean to ocean. It was literally, they just built a wall. And we think that the Romans built this wall to keep those Celts and the Picts, another ferocious tribe, north, out of their hair because they couldn't deal with them. So they just said, you stay up there. We're just going to build it. And I, we think also maybe they wanted the legions to be busy and not just idle. But you see this wall going over the rolling countryside. Um, Scotland on one side, England on the other side. So the Celts were held off up there, and what that meant is that those Celts in the northern part of Britain, in uh, Scotland, and the Celts in Ireland were distinct from Rome. They did not get Romanized like so many other cultures during the Roman Empire. Um, so they might have heard the gospel from Paul, but we know for sure that they heard it in a concerted way from St. Patrick. There were probably evangelists both to Britain and to Ireland throughout those early centuries, but in small ways. We know that there were Christians there. St. Patrick was born at the end of the fourth century, um, and he um, probably didn't look like that. 
but that's okay. That's a 19th century version of St. Patrick. Patrick was, um, as with many, as with all of the Celtic bishops and priests and monks, he had the Celtic tonsure. Anybody know what a tonsure is? Well, the Roman tonsure, sorry men, the Roman tonsure is male pattern baldness with the circle on top and the hair around the fringes. Many respected men in my family have that tonsure. <laughs> and then the, um, the Celtic tonsure was a different kind of tonsure. It was a very high forehead. They would shave, the men and the women would shave their heads up to the, this half of, of their heads so that they would be bald from here down. And what that did, we aren't entirely sure. It's not explicitly written out. But the Celts, the pagan Celts, had these leaders within their community who were called Druids. And the Druids were the pagan priests. And not just priests, but political um, leaders as well. And they were in the upper class. And so when these Celtic saints, monks, bishops, who were preaching the gospel to the Celts, when they wore their hair like this, they said, we are of the class and the education of these others, but our message is different. Listen to us. And that tonsure helps people open their ears to them. I want to know what this person has to say. This person is worth listening to. So St. Patrick grew up. He is in British. He grew up in Britain. He was abducted when he was 15, and he was enslaved in Ireland. And there in Ireland, he became a Christian. And then he miraculously escaped via a dream that the Lord gave him. Um, he escaped with pirates to Gaul, which is France. And there is a strong um, confession of faith in his, well, a strong uh, witness to his faith in this short little work that he wrote called his Confession or Confessio in Latin. And what he says, he begins, and this is, in, this is in the age of Pelagius, remember, and Pelagius was the British bishop who said that we could do good works because we were free to obey, God commanded us to obey, and therefore woe to us when we did not obey, which is true, but we're not totally free. He did not um, completely understand the bondage of sin and how parts of us aren't free at times and not always the parts that we would like to be free. And so um, St. Augustine of Hippo's response to Pelagius counteracts that theology, of Pel that Pelagian theology. Patrick appears to be aware of this going on in the theological climate around him in the fourth century. And Patrick says, I am Patrick, yes, a sinner and the simplest of peasants so that I am despised by the majority of men. But then he goes on to say, um, but it is precisely because of God's wonders that I may not stay silent, nor indeed would it serve any purpose, because of the great grace which the Lord has seen fit to bestow on me. Um, and he talks about how after being corrected, after being converted, God... Um, chose him to be a part of exalting and confessing his wonders before all the nations that are under the heavens. So he talks about his mission, his mission to these people, the Irish. Because what happened was that um, Paul there returned to Gaul. We think that he studied Christianity um, in depth at Auxerre with St. Germanus. And then that he returned to Britain. He received a dream and in his dream, he saw a Celtic man from Ireland, from the tribe where he had been enslaved. And the Celtic man was saying to him, come and preach to us. 
come and preach the gospel to us. And so he felt as though the Lord was calling him to go and preach the gospel. And he says about this that he was like, I was like some great stone lying deep in mud until he who is power, in other words, God, until he was power, came and in his mercy lifted me up. Yes, that's how it was. He indeed did raise me up, for he placed me on the very top of the wall. And so because of that, I must shout out loud to the Lord in order to give back some small thing for all his gifts that are so great, both here and in eternity. And you see in this life, in the life of St. Patrick, that truth that I mentioned at the beginning about the gospel, that receiving so greatly from the Lord um, makes us grateful. And it's that um, gratitude that spurs us on, that fuels any kind of sacrificial living that we might live in this life, any kind of suffering, any kind of great works that we do in the name of the Lord. And Patrick certainly did some great works. He was, he lived in exile from his family. He suffered and he went back. He lived out his faith greatly by loving his enemies. Um, it said, you know, Jesus said on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Patrick knew his Bible, his Latin Bible, in and out. I'm fairly certain he fully understood this concept and he lived it out in his life by being willing to say, yes, God, I will go and preach the gospel to this tribe that enslaved me for so many years. And so he was made, in France, he was made a missionary bishop to Ireland. And he traveled um, back to Ireland with a whole group of missionaries, monastics, monks, nuns, um, other bishops and priests. And there he went. It said, legend has it, that this mountain, which is called Croke Patrick in the west of Ireland, I don't know if I'm doing justice to the Gaelic, but I'm just going to try it, um, in the western part of Ireland, Legend has it that he climbed this mountain, and there on the top of this mountain, he fasted and prayed for 40 days on behalf of the people of Ireland, praying that they would hear and receive the gospel. Um, And one of the amazing things is that the Lord heard his prayer. Ireland was so um, pagan, and yet there were things in their culture that made them ready to hear the gospel. And there is a widespread conversion in the generations, in Patrick's generation and the generation after him. And that's where all of the great Celtic saints come from. I'm going to talk about those in just a minute. But so I did have the opportunity to climb this mountain. And we prayed at the top, not for 40 days, but really quickly. <laughs> so there I am, at the, quickly in comparison. So you can see the view was incredible looking out over all of this. They call it scree, and it's a beast to climb. I mean, it's like... We saw these tourists climbing it in flip-flops. And we saw people get wounded on the way up and down. It was terrible um, because they were just not ready. The guidebooks did not say, wear your hiking boots. But we knew. So we climbed up, and there's this beautiful bay that it looks out over. Um, That's the other thing is when you go on these early Christian heritage, like, study tours, it's really beautiful, too. (laughs) It's food for the soul visually. There are my parents climbing back down. This is another place. So first of all, Krogh Patrick in this isolation, um, Patrick prayed. So many were converted. The faith was caught in Ireland very quickly. 
And then what happened, um, remember that I said that Patrick had brought monks and nuns with him. Um, there is, uh, not only was in the theological climate of the fourth century, not only was um, fourth and fifth century, not only was the Pelagian controversy happening, um, and Augustine of Hippo was writing against it, um, but so too uh, Athanasius a little bit later, hmm, I'm messing up my dates. Maybe one of our historians can help me. I'm bad with dates, but around the same time, let's just say that, um, Athanasius, who was in Alexandria, wrote um, wrote the life of St. Anthony. He wrote a biography of the great St. Anthony of Egypt. And St. Anthony lived in the 3rd century, and what he had done, there had been several ascetic Christians who had um, fasted and prayed and been hermits for the sake of the gospel. And what St. Anthony did, he was the first one to really go out into the wilderness. He went way out into the Egyptian desert. And, and then all of these people came and flocked to him, wanting to learn from him, wanting to pray with him. So these Christian communities started to um, develop. So in some ways, he's considered the father of monasticism. And as this life, this biography of St. Anthony was published in Latin, it was written in Greek and then translated into Latin, it got around even to the edges of the empire. And so even there in Britain, even there in Ireland, they had heard about St. Anthony. And they thought, I want to live a life of great faith like this. I want to give it all, all that I have up. Um, for the sake of the gospel. And so you would have these monastic communities that played an important part, first in the conversion and then in the discipleship of Ireland. And what they did was very often a well-known holy person, a man or a woman, very often usually a man. The women weren't in as much extreme locations. Um, but the men would very often go out to these very extreme locations on the edges of the known world. They didn't have a, a dry desert in Ireland or Britain, but they would go to the very edges of their world, which meant islands and ocean, which is also one of the great reasons to visit there. So um, here, this is a place called Innes Murray, and it was this horrible, wonderful, horrible island that had no docks. So we had to take this little tiny boat and um, my parents had tried to go twice before and not been able to get there. So it was a miracle that the waters were calm enough for us to be able to go. And you sort of meet someone in a back room and pay them money. It was very sketchy. You get, <laughs> you get on this boat. There were no seat belts or seats on the boat. And it was like a low boat. Um, and, then we, and then you're trying to get off onto this wet rock. There's no dock to greet you. You have to get out onto wet, sort of flat rock. And um, so we, we got to see this island. Innes Murray on the very west coast of Ireland in the 5th century it had been uh, a monastic community and this, you can't see it, but this was a circle surrounding the buildings that were the monastic community. It was, I think it was 13 feet deep, the wall surrounding, that circular wall around and enclosing this community that lived literally in the middle of nowhere. And they would make these circular huts, beehive huts in there. That's the kind of um, that would be a, a dwelling that would be typical of the 5th century. So here, there was a complete community within these walls. They had everything they needed. They prayed together. They worshipped together. They learned together. They worked together. They grew things together. They ate together. Then they also had acts of mercy. They took in strangers. They ex exercised hospitality and took care of the sick and the dying if they were in an area where there were other people. Um, so another, so that's Innes Murray, another, I, I, there I am, proof, I was there. Um, another Irish community was founded um, somewhat close to Dublin. This is Glendalough. 
St. Kevin also, we think, in the 5th century or early 6th century, went out to this place in the middle of nowhere. These structures are from later, more Norman times. Um, But he lived there in this little tiny, we think, this little tiny cave. Legend has it, St. Kevin went way out there to pray. And then all these people started following him. He's like, go away, guys. I'm being a hermit out here. They're like, no, we want to pray with you. So this community developed out there in Glendalough. And that community grew. Um, This is true of all of the monastic communities. They were so successful at being at growing things at their different trades that they um, and they grew to be very wealthy in fact and that's why we have um, some of the when you see some of the gothic structures of the monasteries throughout um, England and I'm going to show you some of them but they're all in ruins but when you see them you'll see how beautiful they were they were wealthy they were so wealthy this particular tower is a Norman it's called it it wasn't built by Normans what it was actually done it was a tower that the monks had so that they could take all of their books really quickly if there was a Viking raid and obviously there were enough Viking raids that they thought we better build a tower because we don't want this to happen again their most valuable possessions were the manuscripts that they were copying and the Irish are known those Irish monks and Celtic monks copied laboriously these manuscripts not just of scripture but also of some of the great works of western literature and so we have um, if you've ever heard of that book how the west saved civilization we have so much more because of the monks during those days following the breakdown of the roman empire when there was a power vacuum and there are these marauding bands of barbarians so um so they, they kept these manuscripts, but they would go all the way up to the top of the tower if the, a Viking raid was called because they didn't want all of those precious manuscripts to get stolen. So you see these tall towers throughout. There's another one. This is in Wales. I saw this this summer. St. Non, one of the other themes in Inish Murray was like this as well, was that these monastic communities would be founded specifically and intentionally in places where there had been pagan worship. Almost as though the Christians were saying, you think that there's power in this place? There isn't. We are claiming this place for Jesus Christ, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are worshiping here. This is St. Non's Chapel, and, and it was there was a community there as well. And around this place, the chapel was built on the location where she gave birth to St. David, who is the patron saint of Wales. So apparently St. Non, in the middle of a lightning storm, right here on the beach, um, she surrounded herself. These pagan stones mark out the fact that it was a pagan worshiping place. She went to this, right up to the edge of the cliffs, and legend has it that she gave birth there, hopefully not alone. Um, And so that community was developed around there. This is another Welsh chapel and um, place where there was a community. It doesn't seem like it's that treacherous of a place. This is St. Gobin's Chapel. Um, looking out, you can see the waves. It was built on the spot where it was believed that St. Govan was rescued from a band of pirates miraculously by hiding the rock opened up, is what the legend says. And you can see there's this place in the rock where you literally could see how a man could fit in there. There are rib marks. Very interesting. Um, and so, of course, when he survived, he gave thanks. There I am, proof, more proof I was there. Um, he gave thanks, and he built this chapel precariously on the rocks, or, or later on this chapel was built precariously on the rocks, where he worshipped, where his community worshipped um, in thanksgiving for um, the miracle. So all of this, all of these monasteries, um, I'll mention in a minute what happened with them, but 
I'm running out of time like usual. So the Irish evangelists not only did Ireland become Christian, imagine a map, imagine England here, Ireland to the right. What happened was that so many of the Irish saints, like Columba, went back to Britain. And Columba um, was a saint who went up to, he, he um, parked wherever his boat la- landed, and he ended up founding the monastic community at Iona, at the very northern part of Scotland. And from there, he then sent missionaries around. They started to evangelize um, Scotland. Scotland became Christian, and then they went even further down across that wall into Northumbria, and they began to minister to the northern Britons there in England. Um, and so the re-evangelization of Britain happened from the north, and then also simultaneously in the 6th century from the south and 7th century. So what happened was that... Um, in the north, what happened in Britain, there had been some Christians, but they had been, it was almost like fashionable to be Christian because of Constantine. And there weren't, we don't see any archaeological remains of, te- of, of churches or anything like that. We found chalices and things like that from that era, but we haven't found real evidence of a strong Christian community in Britain following the departure of Rome. So hence the need to re-evangelize. Um, and so they came back down, they built, um, later on buildings like this were built on these monastic communities, the sites of these monastic communities. This is a really old one. They took old rocks and built new things. That's a Roman arch in an 8th century church. Um, you see places like that would have been what their buildings looked like in these monastic communities that began to litter the north of England. In the south of England, um, what happened was that um, St. Bertha, of Kent, who was the queen of Kent, had a pagan husband, and she was so disturbed by this that she sent to Rome, and she said, send me someone to convert my husband. I mentioned this last week. (laughs) I don't know how many, I don't know, I think we have a lot of Christian husbands in the room, so I'm not going to say that that might be a typical thing. Send me someone to convert my husband, and uh, Pope Gregory sent Augustine of Canterbury this time, and he landed, we think, in 595 in Canterbury, hence Canterbury being the heart of Anglicanism, the heart of English Christianity. So there, um, the Roman faith, Roman version of Christianity began to evangelize going north, and they met in the 7th century. There was a clash. I'm going to talk about that in a quick moment. I'm going to zoom through. These are later Gothic versions of monastic communities. These are the night stairs where the, um, they would sleep up here, the monks. And then in the hours, the middle of the night, they would come down to pray and they'd walk down these stairs right into the chapel so that they could say their prayers and then go back to bed. They're worn down with the years and the feet. Um, There were cloisters for praying so that they could stay entirely within the community's walls. Proof that I was there. This is the chapter house, which was where they would meet to do their business. And all throughout England, the monasteries became too rich, and they were very powerful, and they became very secular, unfortunately. Um, Where is this one? This one is Jedburgh Abbey in Scotland. Isn't it beautiful? I'm trying, I'm waiting to, my sister, I've commissioned my sister to make a painting on this one. So if you see an empty wall in my office, it's because it's waiting for this painting. Because I believe in, I love our structure as a church, but I think that part of evangelism involves taking the roof off. And, and getting outside of our walls. And so I love this. Visually, it's beautiful and stunning, and it's metaphorical for me as well. Um, so this is Jedburgh Abbey, Melrose Abbey, Lindisfarne. 
that's just pretty. <laughs> There's Bertha, the, the poor queen of Kent. There's Whitby. And so this takes me to the 7th century. I mentioned Whitby last week. In 644, the Roman version of Christianity and the Celtic version clashed. And they had to decide because there was a husband and wife who, where one was Celtic and one was Roman, and they celebrated Easter on different days. So one was feasting while the other was fasting. And the king said, we got to do something about this. <laughs> and so what they did was they had this big council at Whitby, at the abbey there. Um, and one of my favorite Celtic saints is Hilda. She was the abbess of the abbey during that time. It didn't look like this then. This is the Gothic one from the 13th century. But they, um, they decided prayerfully upon the Roman version of Christianity. And that's why um, British Christianity and English Christianity looks the way that it looks. And so um, what then, how is that different? Well, where am I going with this? Because I have no more time. But where I'm going with this is that um, essentially, and I'll tell you why this picture in a moment, when we preach the gospel to other lands, and now I'm putting on my mission and outreach hat, one of the things that is so important is that we are preaching just the gospel and not our culture. How many times, I took a mission trip to India when I was in, uh, in 2004, and you can see me there. I felt so strongly about wearing Indian dress, but I only had one salwar kameez. So there I am wearing my salwar kameez. This is an urban missionary in India going into the villages with us, and she, was, she wanted to wear Western dress. And the reason why she wore Western dress was to show that she was a Christian, so that they would know that she was a Christian. But in their minds, they associated Christianity not just with Jesus, but with the material wealth of Western culture. I was in a Christian home that was wealthy in India, and the HBO came on, and there was a scene that I was blushing to watch with this group of Christians from India, and they said, it's okay, it's Christian, like it's from America. And I was flabbergasted by that because there is this sense that, well, you're a Christian nation, so we should receive all of what you bring to us. And one of the things that I love about one of our missionaries, Missionary Plug, global teams that we've worked with for years, their tagline is that they are, they are all about bringing um, Christ in the skin of every culture, of bringing Jesus to people and allowing them to make decisions culturally about what can stay and what can go in their culture. Because at the end of Scripture in Revelation 21, we hear that the new Jerusalem descends and by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. All of the glory and the honor of the nations will, will be brought into the new Jerusalem. I fully believe that there will be beautiful colors like these saris and sawar kameezes there. There will also be jeans and t-shirts but there will be both. And that is one of the beautiful things about the way our God communicates himself to us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't try to make us like him before he loved us, before he came to tell us and show us by his own death how much he loves us. And so that is the principle for good, healthy missions going forth. And the Celtic Christians were evangelized in that way. The good things about their culture were maintained um, and then it was fully transformed and um, caught for Christ. So let's pray. So dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for translating yourself to us. 
um, for translating all the holiness of God to us and making a way for us through you. And we ask now, Lord, even as we've been transformed through this love that you've borne for us, would you cause us to go forth from this place um, to be transformed, to proclaim your gospel like St. Patrick, to proclaim even our weakness, but your strength and your glory and your honor and your might, that all nations might come and see and know that you are God and you are good and you have gone the extra mile to translate yourself to us in Jesus. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.